we have an initiative called the world is cool. And actually the fact that at a young millennial living in a major Midwest Metro and buying a hole, maybe out of your reach, but you can come back home like I did, or you can relocate to the area. You can buy a hole and buy a new car and your mortgage and car payments are less than we're paying for rents in some of these cities. So we have some really fantastic outdoors, great small downtowns. So we've been pushing that a lot and we're going to continue to in coming months. Welcome to the Econ Dev Show. We explore the strategies, ideas, and insights that are driving economic development forward into the future. You'll hear new insights from passionate EDs about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from attraction and retention experts about how to apply actionable strategies inside your EDO. We'll help take your organization, your community, and your career to the next level. Here's your host, Dane Carlson. Welcome back. I'm here with Taylor Stepp. Taylor is a program manager at Ohio Southeast Economic Development. Taylor, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dave. What is Ohio Southeast Economic Development? Sure. So we are the regional economic development organization for Eastern and Southern Ohio. We cover 25 counties and are the Johns Ohio Network partner for the region and are the, the front door for state incentives for those 25 counties. Gotcha. Those of us who aren't in Ohio, what is Jobs Ohio? It seems like sure. that's a, probably a pretty important thing. Great, great question. So Jobs Ohio is our state's economic development organization. It, it's a unique setup. It's actually a private nonprofit created by the governor and the state legislature about 10 years ago. It is funded by state liquor profits. So it has a, a non-government financing source for the programs and staff dollars that Jobs Ohio has. And Jobs of Ohio actually also works with the state of Ohio for tax credits, loan programs, infrastructure programs. So it's really a unique setup that they are a great partner and we are privileged at Applin. So that's interesting that they're funded entirely by liquor uh, taxes. I haven't heard of anything like that anywhere else. Do you know of any other states that run their economic development? I don't think there's a a similar model and in Ohio, it's, it's really been a pretty significant advantage for us, especially during COVID because many other states have actually had some challenging fiscal situations, especially prior to the stimulus packages that were passed. And Johnson Ohio was actually able to, to put the pedal to the metal and push through in some uncertain times. So we're not reliant on an annual or biennial state budget like we have here in Ohio. And it's a real competitive advantage for us. That's good. So you cover Southeast... Ohio. For those of us who aren't familiar with Southeast Ohio, what are the cities there and what's it look like? Sure. So 25 counties, rural counties. We are south of Columbus, south of Cleveland, east of Cincinnati. To give you some orientation on the location, we border Kentucky, West Virginia, Pennsylvania. It's the state's Appalachian region. So historically, it's been a very uh, natural resources intensive region, very manufacturing oriented, uh, significant area for steel production, coal, automotive, and we've actually seen a significant resurgence in some pretty high-tech advanced manufacturing and uh, food processing, aerospace, aviation, automotive. Uh, it's a diverse region. Cities, our biggest city is actually Zanesville. It's Chillicothe is our second largest city or the whole of Ohio University, Athens, Ohio, but we don't have a large metro in our region. And that's one of the differentiating factors about better organization or region. What kind of population are you looking at? in that area. We're about a million people over 25 counties. Appalachia has been in the news 
a lot as being this area that, like you said, is natural resource driven, is coal driven, the, the transition from coal to other industries, to, to other energy sources. What's it like there on the ground in that sphere? Great question. So the eastern part of our region actually had a fair amount of oil and gas development. It's part of the shale region. So we've had a tremendous increase in, in production in the eastern portion of our region. We have been, Pennsylvania, right next to our region, actually just landed a shale ethane tracker. There have been numerous discussions about tracking additional petrochemical development in the downstream. So that's been an interesting twist that we've had in our region over the last few years. There's been some oil and gas here, but it's really intensified over the last few years. And it's been an exciting opportunity to attract more petrochemical downstream development. And, and being from Galveston, you are quite familiar with that whole industry. We have seen a lot of the coal lines closed. We have seen a lot of the coal-fired power plants closed. But we still have other resources that are truly beneficial to our economy. So Appalachian hardwood treats are a significant resource in cabinet manufacturing, furniture manufacturing. And Ohio actually has the most fur wood furniture production of any state in the country. So it's been a pretty tremendous legacy industry for us. In fact, both of my parents worked at a hardwood cabinet manufacturing operation in Jackson, Ohio. It's been a big business for our region. Some of that's been lost overseas, but now with some of these supply chains consolidating, we're seeing some of that come back and we've had some recent project successes where that's, that's occurred. But, you know, something that's probably the most topical thing right now after 2020 is broadband development and the advent of remote work. We really feel like 2020 and the remote work revolution is going to democratize growth for areas like ours because we have tremendous natural resources, low cost of living, tremendous quality of life, really, and access to big cities in about an hour and a half's drive. But some of the employment opportunities, especially for white-collar folks, haven't been here traditionally. So we view the widespread adoption of remote work to be a, a tremendous thing. So I, I live in Jackson, Ohio, and three doors up for me, family moved in from California. Three doors down for me, family moved in from Nashville, Tennessee, and we've just seen that all across our region in some spots more than others, but we're seeing folks come to our region because it's a great place to live. And now the, the many of these jobs are available more remote. Gotcha. So they didn't move there for a job. They moved there for the quality of life, cost of living, and then they're working remotely. So are Correct. you guys actively recruiting for people to move there for those reasons? A absolutely. We have, a, we have an initiative called the, the Rural is Cool initiative. And we've, we're, we're pitching a number of things. We're pitching the fact that if you're someone like me and a young millennial living in a major Midwest metro and buying a home, maybe out of your reach, but you can come back home like I did, or you can relocate to an area. You can buy a home, buy a new car and your mortgage and car payments are less than we're paying for rents in some of these cities. So we have some really compelling attributes, fantastic outdoors, great small downtowns. So we've been pushing that a lot and we're going to continue to in coming months. Let's get in the nitty gritty of that. How are you reaching out? How are you finding these people? How are you getting in front of them? So we don't have all of our plans quite public yet, but we are working with some select communities on targeted marketing and efforts to attracting folks to come back home, to empower their communities with grassroots tactics and initiatives to bring folks back and bring folks into their community. So the, the biggest thing we're working on right now is putting the data story together. And that looks like comparing data within a county. For, for one example, Zillow has tremendous data on, for example, a typical four-bedder cold, what that would cost in a given county compared to another area. So we really think that the real estate component is such a key factor 
in some of the individual location decisions that people are going to be making. And we, we think it's a huge advantage for us. So we'll be talking more about that in the coming months. That's super exciting. And uh, Rural is Cool is a fantastic name. I, I hope you win some awards for that because I think that's great. What else are you guys doing for attraction work? We do a number of different things. We do a lot of, we do a lot of, we, we do trade shows. We we go to, we have a website with an integrated system for chatting and, and, and discussing with folks who may come visit our website. We have some other calling programs that we, that we leverage and utilize. We've found that some of our best resources for business attraction are um, working with existing companies to attract suppliers, have conversations about key industries that could be part of that supply chain. And, and we have a really strong value proposition to talk about the available sites and buildings that we have, the unique real estate inventory that we have with the Ohio River as a navigable waterway. Ohio is the most rail miles of any state in the United States. We have a tremendous amount of rail sites and opportunities. And we have, we've had some pretty strong business attraction wins and we are putting more inventory real estate wise online so that we can win some more. That's phenomenal. Do, does the state of Ohio, does it have a statewide sites database that, that's publicly available? If we have a zoo prospector database, it's a tremendous resource. We also have a site Ohio program, which uh, is basically a site authentication program for uh, properties that have had due diligence completed and utility capacities confirmed to a certain level to lance pretty good sized projects and our, our region is a number of those set Ohio authenticated sites. Interesting that you mentioned that your parents uh, were in woodworking and uh, they're locally. How did you end up in economic development? What was, what's been the process for you? Sure. Yeah. So my parents worked at, in Marilac Cabins in Jackson and they, they eventually went to college and became teachers. So they were teaching me all along the way, as many teachers do. But I had the chance to go to Ohio State and got exposed to uh, a number of different organizations and, and folks from my involvement at the university campus. And I, I really caught the economic development bug at that age in college, working with some key leaders in Columbus and, and even working with university leaders like, like Gordon Gee. So at that time, I actually started an internship at Jobs, Ohio. I started my time there, spent some time at Jobs, Ohio, but really wanted to focus on my home area. So I took another position advocating and working for the area through the state legislature, working in staff at the Ohio State House. And I just kept getting more and more engaged in economic development efforts and, and shaping public policy to help economic development. And it's fortunate enough to be able to come to work for Ohio Southeast. It's called an APEG at the time. And I, I guess going back to the original questions for is what inspired me to work in this field. When, when I was growing up, we, my whole community lost so much of its industrial base. In the Great Recession, I had many of my uh, parents, my friends' parents were out of work, and it was a devastating blow to our community. We'd lost several large manufacturers, several coal lines in the area, and it was just really devastating. And when I thought about how I could make the single biggest difference for my community and my region, it was clear that economic development was the pathway to make that happen. So it's really a passion project for me. I enjoy it. We recently found some video of myself as a three-year-old talking about the route for the train in and out of Jackson and the different businesses that serve. So I've had this bug for a while. It just took me a while to figure it out. Now, one of the best parts about doing this podcast is I get to talk to people like yourself who it turns out probably always wanted to be economic developers, just didn't know what it was. I heard a rumor that if this hadn't worked out for you, you probably could have gone into politics because I heard that you were the two-time student body president there at Ohio State. So how come you didn't end up uh, going into politics? I found that right now I could make a bigger difference in my community through economic development. And I still have a passion for politics. I still stay engaged in, in what happens in the state 
in the region of the country, but I'm in a little bit of economic development right now. It's a real, it's a real joy to work in the field. And yeah, I had some really interesting experiences at Ohio State and learned, definitely learned more outside the classroom than I did inside the classroom, you know, full thing in my teachers, but it was just, it was just such a hands-on learning experience. And Ohio State's got an interesting model where students have an equal process and the shared governance through the university. At age 19, I was sitting at some tables that I probably shouldn't have been at having some conversations that I was not really well equipped for. So I had to learn and study and, and try to catch up with the adults pretty quickly. It was a great experience. I think that's probably served you well uh, in economic development. So often, especially when we're starting out, we, we have this imposter syndrome. We're sitting at the table with, like you said, the adults, and we feel like, what are we doing here? What, what do we have to contribute? And you probably learned an excellent lesson early on. Let's talk about more about these rural communities that you serve. Let's talk yep. about, you know, why you do a lot of business retention and expansion work there. I'd imagine more than, more than attraction. What are the challenges, you know, they're being faced with, especially now, you mentioned earlier supply chains. We see that having these ultra long worldwide supply chains is probably not going to work out in the end. And the United States has, has had a couple generations wherein we supported the rest of the world as they developed while we here at home fell by the wayside. And for good or for bad, that's all going to change. And COVID really began that process, sped that up a little bit. These In these rural communities, what do you see? What are the strengths that these rural communities have? What are the weaknesses that they have going forward? What are the things that they need to be working on? You know, what we hear time and time again from many of the community, from many of the businesses in our communities, are that they feel like they've tapped into the best kept secret in the United States and Norwegian. And some of these companies are Fortune 500 companies with substantial facilities in our area who say that even though there aren't a lot of interstates in our region, the four-lane highway access that we have all across our region provides better logistical advantages than for some of these for some of these companies than any other facility they have in the world. Really, we really feel like we have a strong value prop with our location connected to the United States. But our, our people is a tremendous, our people are a tremendous asset would be the grammatically correct way to say that. One example, and you may not be familiar with the store, Rural King is somewhat like Tracker Supply. They are a, they have, I think, 140 stores and, and they're located across the Midwest and Southeast U.S. Uh, when they came to town in 2015, they were hiring 125 employees, about $12, $13 an hour, and they had 3,000 applicants in two days. Not wow. just applications, people that showed up for work. And Rural Kings expanded because they realized that they could be anywhere, but the but the workforce advantage that we have and the surplus leader that we have here is really tremendous. That's been tested in COVID to some degree because of some of the funky things that are happening in a more macro picture right now. But time and time again, we find these larger companies, they, they locate in our area and they have facilities elsewhere and are astounded by the cost and labor avail availability advantage we have. As far as drawbacks, I'd say the, I'd say probably the biggest drawback we have is perception. You mentioned that the Appalachia is a hotly talked about area and in a highly used term nowadays. And we resent the fact that some of these New York Times and Washington Post reporters parachute into one of our communities and, and talk about a factory that's closing or a power plant that's closing and, and discuss the drug problem and don't choose to highlight a lot of the really good things that are happening here. And a lot of those same challenges are happening in some of the, the larger cities across the country, but they, they're getting coverage for positive things. And that's typically the only coverage that our area receives. We think that's an accurate reflection of our region. We think that we have a lot of good things to, to talk about. And a lot of large companies and small and medium-sized companies have operated in our region for a very long time. 
And I think it just takes a company to, to, to come down and talk to us, to hear testimonials from our employers to realize that we have a really strong value problem. I'd imagine that working in a coal mine or working at a coal power plant, that's hard work. And so you've probably got some really excellent workers that, that really value hard work that's probably generationally driven into them, that you get up in the morning and you work hard. And having, like we said, having exported many of the jobs out of the manufacturing jobs out of the United States, as that happens, one of the challenges that communities face is this sort of stigma against blue collar jobs. And historically, there's been this kind of stigma. Everybody wants to sit down at a desk and work nine to five in an office. And so maybe that's a real strength for your region because you have these people who are willing to work, who understand the value of hard work and want a better opportunity. I, I couldn't agree more. And some of our communities actually have the most per capita manufacturing employees of any counties in the state. And Ohio is actually number three manufacturing state in the country. So you can just tell from the data alone that we have such a strong concentration of manufacturing that um, it's frankly underserved because we've found that we have about one in four workers are leaving our region every single day to drive to a metro outside of our region. So tremendous opportunity for folks who'd like to take advantage of those resources. That is. And if they're, if one in four are driving away, that means those metros are, are close enough that they can go and work there. And hundreds of millions of people within a day's drive of you, you're in sure. a prime location despite the lack of interstates, but you're in a good position. And the truth is, with all the negative press, really the only direction that you guys can go is up. Any positivity is going to be amplified. Kudos to you. So 2020 was an interesting year for all of us. We all suffered in our own way. But from what I understand, you you had a, a pretty good 2020. I understand you got married. I did, yeah. And congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. There's a been a sort of nationwide, there was a nationwide stoppage, maybe a worldwide stoppage on weddings. Yeah. I understand that there's a huge glut of them that, that need to get done this year. So that's very exciting. Like I said, congratulations. But I also understand that you were in your CECD sometime in the last year. Was that in 2021? Yeah. So I really did a good amount of my coursework and started studying towards the end of 2020, but passed the CECD about a month ago now in June. And that was an arduous process. And I would not recommend to any economic developers listening to get married in pandemic, to buy a Victorian house remodel in pandemic, and to, to study towards your CFD because you will be overloaded as I was. But it was, it's good because we're on the other side of most of those things now, but it was a, it was a fast paced year. Any tips or advice for anyone who is studying? I would, I've heard a lot of advice from folks and I'd recommend just pouring yourself into the course base. I, I studied almost every day for six months, probably an hour a day or so. And that's just what it takes. It's, it's not as much about your head knowledge as an economic developer as it is about memorizing the glossary and course books. And they're excellent guides, but it's, it's an extreme process. And I think most folks will begin to appreciate other folks' CFD certifications when they go through the process as I know I did. That's phenomenal. Taylor, best of luck. You are in a, a great location. Like you said, you have the Ohio uh, River there. It's part of the Mississippi uh, River system, the largest inland water transportation system in the world, overlaid on the most um, prolific agricultural land in the entire world. It's a great time to be in Southeast Ohio. It's a great time to be in the United States. And I really appreciate you coming on the show today and talking with us. Sure. Thanks for having me, Dan. I appreciate it. 
listening to the Econ Dev Show with Dane Carlson. If you're an economic developer who never stops learning, for more expert strategies, fresh insights, and new ideas to take your career, organization, and your community to the next level, visit us on the web at econdevshow.com. 